Hi, this is Dr. Brill. Today our special guest is Dr. David Hain of the Family Eye Care Centers of Virginia. He has 21 years of practice experience, business in the office and out of the office. So today we're putting our business hats on, leaving our clinics aside, and we're going to learn about purchasing practices, how he does it. We're going to learn about the lifetime value of a patient. We ought to be thinking about that and... Do we keep track of a, a spreadsheet of our referrals? Are we getting these patients back or not? Now, this is really important. How do we get the lowest price for a piece of equipment that a company offers? And you'll learn about the robinson Patman Act of 1936. David also has experience working in the cosmetics industry with S.D. Lauder. He will parallel many things that are happening in the cosmetic industry to what's happening in optometry. So stay tuned for Dr. David Hain. Welcome to Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. I'm Dr. Raymond Brill with my co-host, Harry Brill, and we're here to bring you stories about Wizards of Eyes. Yes, what is a wizard, Dr. Brill? Well, these are folks that you may have heard about, may not have heard about. These are people who are actually very successful in doing what they do in all aspects of eye care. We're not talking to self-proclaimed industry geniuses, experts, masters, or gurus because we're talking to wizards of eyes that make it happen each and every day. They are out there working every day in the labs, on the road, in the practices, in surgery suites, making lenses, making frames. Yes, we want to hear these back-of-the-house stories about innovation, entrepreneurship, and make you feel excited to do what you do. We want you to be energized about the whole eye care field. And this is not your big optical program. This is done out of the passion of our hearts. Please go ahead and subscribe to Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or your favorite app. Also, visit entrepreneur.com where you'll find our latest blogs and special video content. That's www.eyetrepreneur.com. This episode of Entrepreneur is supported by 3DNA Eyewear, the only 3D facial scanning bespoke eyewear design app that allows opticians to design any frame a creative mind can imagine, like frame materials made from wood, shell, buffalo horn, carbon fiber, acetate, titanium, and even your favorite vinyl records, delivered to your office in as little as seven days. Are you tired of being showroomed? Are you tired of RXs walking out your door for cheap do-it-yourself online ordering? Well, no more perpetual in-office try-on of frames until it's so confusing that you lose the sale. Free up capital, lower your inventory costs, and make frames to order. All you do is design the frame for a perfect fit based on a 3DNA facial and head scan. Join the revolution of 3DNA eyewear providers and stand strong against mass-produced frames. You are in charge of the design and material selection. It's your brand now. Download the app for free at our website, entrepreneur.com slash wizard, and start designing today with our special limited time offer. Welcome back to Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. 
Today, our guest is David Hain of Family Eye Care Centers of Virginia. David, how are you today? Great. Great to see you again or talk to you again, Dr. Brill. All right, David. So we are the podcast that tries to highlight people that not everybody knows, but are very accomplished in their practices, in the social community, in organized optometry. And David, you are one such person. Can you give us your background here and and how your journey was through uh, into optometry and a little bit of your practices? So I'm a second generation optometrist. My stepfather was a 1948 graduate of PCO. I graduated in 97. Um, my background is a little bit unusual. My undergraduate degree was in finance, worked out in the financial world for about three years, and then decided that I wanted to help more people instead of just pushing numbers around. That's great. So how did you make your decision to go in optometry? Well, that's a great one. Obviously, Sounds like I you had, might have, someone might say, perhaps you should have stayed in finance. Nah, well, I, I think you do need a good financial background to run an optometric practice. And that is one of the problems that we have is the graduates have uh, zero financial sense. Um, and it's not beneficial for them to be running practices. And I think that's why you see the growth in some of these buying groups and uh, uh, consultant groups. And you've got the schools creating good doctors, um, but have zero financial sense. And when you're running a practice, it's big dollars. It's, um, I always say it's, uh, more, there's more dollar value in your practice than in most marriages. And the mistakes that can be made can be of significant financial uh, impacts. Yeah, I, I always tell young optometrists to be, when they say, what should I major in, biology or math or chemistry? And I say, You're, you really need to make sure you have a business foundation uh, which I never had in terms of accounting, finance, and economics. So uh, you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Even a good class in this day and age in uh, negotiating, um, there are many business classes. You'd be surprised at how many opportunities you have to negotiate. Think of all the supplies you buy for your office. Think of the equipment you buy for your office, your contacts, your glasses, uh, your vendors, the the hundreds of thousands of dollars that are spent by your practice, even communicating and negotiating with your staff for compensation. These are all important, uh, typical things that are not taught in optometry schools. So it, it seems like an optometrist doesn't necessarily have to be part of a larger organization to get some scales of economy if you're able to negotiate well. I think that's why uh, a lot of the new optometrists or even seasoned ones join uh, some of these uh, practice alliances or associations. So, um, so you started your you took over your pra your father in law's practice and then expanded it. Maybe you can elaborate on that. Yes. So, it graduated in nineteen ninety seven. Um, he practiced until nineteen ninety nine. Um, we did a probably was the best thing I've ever done. Um, which was a smooth transition. So he would either start the exam or finish the exam. Um, he would step in 
um, and, and merely introduce me. Um, in some cases, uh, some patients only wanted to see him. And so he would do everything up to the dilation and then I would take over and then he would come in. It was just a very smooth transaction, um, seamless to the patients and it ensured retention of patients. Uh, I've now purchased, um, four additional practices and now understand after going through those, the true value of that, um, fade in, fade out, uh, when you've got, I think this is probably a standard out there that when you've got a practice that changes doctors, you're going to lose 25 to 33% of the patients um, be, just because there is a quote unquote personality change. Or should I say personnel change? Yeah, that makes sense. It's hard to maintain the same vibe. People are going to question the quality of the care, the experience, and those things are hard to replicate to a T. You know, some people are going to come back because they love the location, they love the product selection, but um, a good majority of them will say the doctor, you know, he, he or she was the reason. David, so what are your current, you know, modes of practice in optometry? What is inspiring to you and what are you doing to keep thriving? Um, so we've done some changes. Uh, I started out with a, um, taking over my stepfather's practice and then several years down the road, um, I took over another practice from a uh, uh, optometrist who passed away. And then I've purchased two uh, chains, um, chain locations. Real briefly, how did you know how to purchase a practice? So... I had some, you know, good training. Um, you know, when we look at the financials of a practice, you can see kind of what goes on. So I'm actually looking at another practice to purchase. And when I look at what the net income is, I realize that this practice has not as much value as the seller thinks. Um, so I'm are you basing that on EBITDA or what type of factor? So what, what I looked at was uh, many different factors. So if the, let's just say the practice is grossing 600,000 and the doctor is taking home, we'll just say 200,000 to make, you know, national statistics fit in there. Um, this practice is much smaller. So if I were to buy this practice and bring a doctor in, that there's no extra fat on the bone uh, to afford the practice. So in essence, the practice has no value, right? So if all the practice is generating is enough income to pay for the doctor, that doesn't leave it worthwhile to purchase. Yes, that makes sense. So I, you know, I think there's two theories out there about purchasing practices. Are you supposed to make one or two super practices or is it wise to expand into more communities with more locations? I think the, you know, it's best to follow the lead of others. And by that, I mean, look at what other organizations have done. So if you look at like a Home Depot, a Lowe's, a Walmart, what they do is they have one location when it reaches maximum capacity. 
then they open up another store, usually within eight to 10 miles away. Um, I'm on the East Coast, so we're a little bit more condensed than out on the West Coast or West of the Mississippi. Um, so the rules may be a little bit more flexible in that regard. But the idea is to, it's kind of like the game, uh, uh, the games that are out there, right? You want to create your fort and then have outposts and then enlarge your empire. Right. That's good. Hey, uh, David, we have uh, some concerns about how co-management is being done. And in certain parts of the country, when I speak with other optometrists, they say, oh, it's very flexible, very easygoing. And still others, it's very competitive, meaning that ophthalmologists all have a number of opt opt optometrists working for them. They all have opticals and uh, don't necessarily honor the referral. And that could be for co-management on premium IOLs or, or LASIK or just returning your patient after referral. So how does that work in your area? In general, maybe discuss how the nuances of co-management. Well, first of all, we have to get a better understanding of what is co-management. I think when I talk to doctors in my area, it's kind of an afterthought, and it really should be a little higher priority in my opinion. So think of it this way. Um, you take your car to the mechanic. The mechanic says, hey, I realize it's an eight-year-old car and it really doesn't have any value. And uh, we think you should just leave the car here um, and, and go buy a new one. And we've all had experiences maybe like that in life um, where we have something that we think is worth more than other people thinks it's worth. And I think that's how we should really think of our co-management patients. I think the national statistic is a, a patient is worth $3,000 in profit to the practice over the lifetime. I believe that's the one of the figures that I've seen batted around. But I, I would question how many of our colleagues um, even keep a list of those patients that have been referred out. So early in my career, I started a spreadsheet of who was referred out to who, did we get a letter back? What was the date of the letter? And have we gotten the patient back? And that's something that my every time we did a co-management form, the staff would put that in the logbook. And once a month, we would go through the logbook. And for many doctors, I don't even think they track their co-management. And if you can't measure something in your practice, you cannot manage it. So you had a system of reconciling and once you did that monthly report how would you reward the doctor referring to you and vice versa so, speak with the uh, the doctors who aren't complying with your so protocol. we made it very clear so when you had it on paper and you have a monthly report you have facts and figures to go back to them and say hey over the last month i sent you let's say one patient a week, four, four patients. I've only seen two of them back and two of them have disappeared. Um, so you've got to be able to speak with knowledge and have names. And, you know, it's a communication between, you have to have a relationship with your referring doctor, whether it be, you know, lids or cataract surgery. We do a ton of cataract surgeries um, in our practice. 
And so we have to watch those. So they represent a lot of money to give you an idea. Um, again, I've been practicing for 21 years. I remember the days before cataract surgery was a refractive procedure and before toric IOLs. So all those patients represented potential income through glasses sales. Today, um, I think we'll all admit that post-op glasses sales are probably on the decline and consistently declining. So that's a that's a trend we need to watch. Um, and we certainly want good surgical results for our patients, um, but we also want to make sure that we're getting them back. So getting back to the co-management angle is you've got to you've got to have the numbers, you've got to have the data, and you've got to review the data on a consistent basis. Well, that's really good. We we not only like our patients being returned by the consultant uh, surgeon, but I always like to have the surgeon refer outbound to me as part of their extended network for things that they don't do. For example, specialty contact lenses, dry eye advanced procedures, different things that we would welcome, even regular glasses, provided they don't carry dispenser, even if they do. And that seems to be a foreign concept to ophthalmology, that the reciprocal referral. So have you been able to achieve the business reciprocity with uh, ophthalmology? Absolutely. Um, we have a, I have a wonderful relationship um, with several of the ophthalmologists. Um, as, as you were talking, I thought to myself, you know, I, none of my ophthalmologists that I routinely use even have opticals. So I find it interesting, the variation between Midwest and East. Um, and, and that wasn't even a, a, a reason I selected the ophthalmologists that I did. The other thing that I truly enjoy is, um, texting uh, ophthalmologists. Um, they, they seem very uh, welcome to that. Um, and I'll even text them like, hey, what happened with this case? Um, we do the routine, you know, post-op co-management. And we should spend a few minutes talking about the billing of that. Um, but the... Uh, Go ahead. Talk. Let's talk about that for a minute. So it's actually very interesting. Um, so I do both uh, regular cataract co-management and complex cataract co-management. And there are some doctors out there that, I, that weren't even aware that there's a complex code out there. Um, the complexity is based upon, you know, a lot of factors. Um, do they have to use a ring to hold the pupil open? Do they have to use triptan blue to identify the nucleus of the lens. And so there are many different, and obviously uh, all the additional MIG surgery, the micro uh, incisional glaucoma surgeries that are now being done. So all those qualify as complex. So for instance, uh, the reimbursement is higher on a complex, no surprise there, than a regular cataract surgery. And the other thing is, is that from what I've seen talking to other optometrists, we quite frankly don't bill enough um, for those procedures. So 
one of the things that I've seen and that I've corrected with my communications with ophthalmology is let's identify the code, right? So if they're billing for a complex and you co-manage as a regular cataract surgery, your reimbursement is going to be significantly less than if it was complex. So oh, that's, that's good to know. That's You're doing the same work, but now you're earning less. The other thing that I find interesting is many insurance companies don't have a good understanding of co-management. So for instance, we have the blues here, Blue Cross Blue Shield, now called Anthem. Um, their, their request for billing is they want an office visit code instead of a uh, 66984-55 code. So technically they're asking you to violate the rules for their ease. For the, com for, that for the complex cataract co-management? Well, for either. So they just want an office visit code as opposed to a co-management code. Well, we're kind of obligated to bill for the highest and best level, right? So if we're co-managing this patient, we should be, be billing for co-management. Well, I hope the, the ophthalmologist knows about that. Well, they do. And of course, they don't want to fight it because then they're not getting their 20% reduction. So the ophthalmologists really do want this. Very good. I appreciate your insights on that. And we'll all have to do much better at coordinating with the, uh, the ophthalmologists we refer to. I want to switch a little bit about more the business of business. You, you've been good at at integrating uh, the hats that we wear. I mean, we wear our clinical hat, but we also wear our business hat at times. And can you get into a little bit about how you deal with vendors in a nice way and perhaps the Robinson-Patman Act, which is not well known? Sure. Um, Robinson-Patman Act has been around for, I um, would have to check it, but about basically about 100 years. It's a little known rule, the FTC, and basically what it says is that all vendors um, need to sell at the same price. Well, we all know that there are volume discounts and contact lenses. There are special rates for equipment for um, some of our modern technology, um, which I love and embrace, and I hope everyone else does. Um, so when buying these items, um, you're, you're kind of aware that a buying group may be getting a better price than you or something like that. Um, these are all violations of Robinson-Patman Act. So the one bit of advice, just very shortly, I can advise you is when you're ready to, when you picked out your equipment and you're ready to purchase it, just make sure that you ask to ensure as put it in the contract that this is the lowest price that it's being offered at. And something like that in writing in a contract, usually when the salesman goes to their superior, they're going to want to take it out of the contract. Well, if they want to take it out of the contract, I assure you, you're not getting the lowest price. Right. But that, and is that notwithstanding, uh, 
volume of purchase, for example, if you have a, a buying group or another association, a large association of practices, they'll say, well, they have uh, a, a negotiated, like a large volume purchase. So how do we, how do we get that large volume purchase price? Correct. Just say, look, you're, vol you're violating the Robinson-Patman Act and I want that lowest price. That's that's one way. That's that's a little bit more aggressive than than you need to be at first. Um, remember, you're dealing with salespeople, and as much as I love my salespeople, and as much as we think they're our best buddies, they're getting a piece of the action, and the more money they can extract from you, that's more money in their pocket. Right. And so, we want to be able to communicate to them in a nice way that we expect you know, a fair price. So for instance, um, let's say there's a group out there, we'll call them Vichy Suave, VS for short. Okay. Uh, and let's say we know that they have a buying price of X and we're offered X plus Y. Um, the first thing I would do is just point blank, ask the rep, what is Vichy Soie's, uh price? And they're certainly going to ask, "Are you a member?" Um, you can you can either answer that however you'd like. Um, my answer is, "Why does it matter?" Um, and you should be able to negotiate to at least uh, the VS pricing. Well, they they sometimes say something like. Well, they have a special SKU number, and that SKU is just made for them. For example, they rename or relabel contact lens contact lenses, and I know I've in the past asked that, what's the VS pricing? And they said, well, they have this model, and we can't sell it to you for that price, but we have one that is like a dash one on that, and we can match the price on that one, which essentially is you know, except for some little tiny feature, either the same model. So they get around it in many ways, but, um, and when they dis when they say, no, we can't sell it to you that because you're not a member of this group, why don't you join the group? I mean, I've had that happen several times where they said, yes, it's $10,000 less if you belong to this group. And I just walk away. I say, no, why would I want to spend $10,000 more? So you've been able to enforce that? Absolutely. So, you know, one thing I always do is when I can't get satisfaction, it's just like customer service. Our our reps, again, they come in there, they want to bring us, you know, food and and friendship and, and a good pat on the back. Um, but they're 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 glorified order takers. It never hurts to elevate it to their boss. Ask, say, can we can I have a meeting with your manager? I mean, right. when, when, when we're talking equipment, we're talking, you know, anywhere from forty dollars to $85,000 for some of the equipment. Um, we recently brought in automated phoropters. Um, we purchased uh, two. We're going to purchase probably one or two more every year till all till we, that's all we have. I highly, recommend, I highly recommend those, by the way. Um, and, and yeah, we have, we've had six for almost 10 years now, and it really makes a difference in the flow. So I, 
I, uh, I've recognized that a long time ago, although it is an investment. And it seems like the more money that you're willing to spend, the closer you can get to the bottom line price. So, Well, one of the things we looked at was what does a new Ferropter cost versus what is the automated cost? And then we actually sat down with a, with a stopwatch. Um, we, we got one of the units on loaner basis, and we actually had it for several months. Um, they were very kind and very accommodating. I think so because of the the potential that my practice represented for their purchase. So, without naming a brand, um, there were we actually brought in several of them. Some of them were uh, less efficient than a manual Ferropter. Um, the units that we chose with were considerable savings. We figured out that we can add about two or three patients a day, which more than pays for the Ferropter's cost. So I, I certainly encourage um, something that's known as a time motion study. Um, you can usually bring in a professional who will, I think I paid about 450 bucks for the day um, and basically sat there with a stopwatch and clocked what, uh, what the patient flow looks like from from a time standpoint of view. So mm -hmm. this is something else I'd like to talk about, um, which is uh, uh, choosing your EHR systems. Well, I want to get into your role as a consultant to industry. This is something that's fascinating to me. And most optometrists realize that they're in the business of optometry and they stay there. And a lot of very successful ODs have had a lot of their success in, in, in industry, whether it's related or not related to optometry. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience as a consultant to the cosmetics industry? Certainly. Um, first, let me say I love optometry. It is my first love. If you ever have a profession that I think you have this, Dr. Brill, from our meeting, um, we love what we do. And, and, and if you have a great passion for what you do, it's never work. It is something to do. It is an income generator. But when you have love, it's it's much easier to go through the day. So through exactly. um, through a friend of a friend, through a friend of my brother's, actually, um, he happened to be uh, working for a rather large cosmetic company um, called Estee Lauder. Um, as many of your listeners can tell, I'm a man. My name is David. And my experience with cosmetics is about zero other than paying for the bill at my you wife. Don't, you don't have your favorite lipstick or eyeliner? No, 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 no. Oh, come on. Only on the weekends. And so um, the head of Estee Lauder's um, innovation is a gentleman that used to work for my brother. Um, they are in the process. It actually got rolled out this month in a small machine it's basically about 36 by 36 inches. Um, that's not as important. But why would a company now create a different mode of delivering? So let's talk about what, po what populations are doing. People are moving away from department stores. People are uh, moving more toward online. We now have the utter offense of online refractions. 
um, as well as online glasses. So Estee Lauder sees the cosmetic industry as moving. And it's, to give you a good idea, if you go to your local grocery store or uh, CVS uh, drugstore, um, there's now a whole huge area of cosmetics. So they brought me on as a consultant um, for lipstick color. And I learned a great deal about what they do. So if I can share with you just briefly, um, typically they produce between 34 and 78 colors. They seasonally change. I'm telling this, I'm sure some of our female colleagues will be like, no, duh. But for male colleagues, this will be kind of interesting. Um, they produce these colors and about 60% of them sell. And about 40% of them are not liked by the public. Again, these change seasonally. So if you find a color that you're in love with, you may not be able to get that three months from now. So imagine if that were true for glasses, contacts, and, you know, so just trying to draw the parallels between our profession and what they do. We call those, so, we call those the dogs, the, the frames that no one wants to take home. Right. So there are dogs in, in colored lipstick and those become their freebies. So at some point during the year, they offer a little pouch of two other products and a free lipstick. Well, the free lipstick becomes those dogs, right? In optometry. Um, I don't know about you, but when we have dogs in our practice, they either get sent to the free clinic um, or we will give them away for free if you buy the lenses. Um, great second pair glasses for uh, sunwear or for contact lens wearers. So at least the dog is let out, <laughs> let out of the house. Um, so they had an interesting way of doing that. Well, if you could imagine from their perspective, if 40% of your product is essentially gone, right? It doesn't generate any revenue. You're losing a lot of money. So what Estee Lauder has released, it was released um, just in the last two weeks in Korea, Japan, and Korea, Japan and China. Um, we'll talk about the Asian markets in just a brief second. Um, is a small machine, basically 36 by 36 by 36. That's essentially a Lowe's or Home Depot paint mixer. Um, you basically can pick your color. Um, it is mixed there. It is, uh, packaged right there, um, and is dispensed right there. And they're able to do that at the same cost as it was before. Obviously now the, the slippage, the loss is now zero. So it's just, so it, actually it's just in time inventory. Correct. Correct. And so I got involved when they were and are still working on, um, we want to be able to, in this day of customization, um, be able to take our cell phone and take a picture of a color and be able to match that color to a lipstick. So the analogy I like to draw is imagine being around in the fall. We're out here on the East Coast. It's kind of gloomy today. Um, imagine being able to take a picture of a red leaf, a red maple leaf, and be able to upload that from your phone to the machine 
to produce a color that would match that. Not only would it be, not only would it match that, but it would be permanently stored in your phone and be able to be reproduced year after year after year. So you remember how we talked about the seasonality of colors, your color is now always your color. In addition, we're working on some specialized packaging where the lipstick tube would actually have the person's name. Yeah, some, the customization sounds pretty amazing. That's part of the experience of buying cosmetics, I'm sure. So kind of into the science of color. So you take a picture. Is there some crazy algorithm out there that's able to determine the kind of spectral properties of the color to make it into exactly. lipstick? Exactly. And, and that's what I was helping them with. So they had um, some very, uh, two PhD uh, gentlemen from um, South Korea um, that were basically trying to match the color wheel to the color um, and just couldn't get it done. Um, the problem was presented to me and I basically came up with a different way of doing it. And that's what we're testing and implementing um, now. So it's kind of like your tint machine in your lab. Um, yes. You need to be able to re you, you need to be able to reproduce a G15, and you'd have to kind of know what colors comprise that, or how many times you need to dip into red to get a rose one versus you know a rose three. Is that pretty? similar there or the sherwin williams way of coming up with those pigment well it's a lot different that that would that if that were the case oh, it would be different. so much simple because right typically your 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 lab your lab person is going to take the the sample that we showed the patient and be able to dip right. the lens to see do they match so now what we're doing is with the cell phone we're taking a picture using different lighting right so we know the color is based upon peripheral lighting and how do we neutralize that so right so we look at the angle of the sun the time of the picture we look at other colors in the picture to best match that color okay i think i get that so but i'm sure there's some proprietary science in there too there is and, and that's why i'm just kind of giving you some generalities the other great thing is is that um we're also working on, uh, once we're done with this lipstick project, which should wrap up in the next six months, um, we're actually now working on foundation. Um, I did not even know what foundation was, um, but the future of foundation is actually going to be, uh, so foundation is basically, think of it like, if you will forgive me, and guy talk. Um, it is the primer coat before you put the paint on. Um, so <laughs> um, the primer coat uh, of foundation, as more and more women are becoming more athletically inclined and producing more male hormone, we're seeing more acne in more young women. And so our plan is to develop... Um, a foundation with a antibiotic in it. Um, and so I'll be on that team as well. 
um, which is very exciting. And then after that, then I actually get to do some eye stuff. So very good. Um, I'm, I, I always say I'm starting from the bottom and working up. So how do you fit that all into your schedule? Um, it's actually very interesting. I, I'm kind of a workaholic. I think um, uh, I, I'm blessed with the most wonderful woman, my lovely wife. Um, and uh, she allows me to do what I need to do. Um, she knows that I'm a much better person when I'm happy. And I take great joy in helping people and and helping people makes me happy. Awesome. Awesome. So it sounds like you enjoy disruptive innovation. I would consider the automatic production and color science of makeup a disruptive innovation. What disruptive innovations in optometry or optical do you currently have your eyes on? Um, so there's some really neat stuff that's going out there. I, I'm amazed in my 21 years how far things have come. Um, I, I distinctly remember uh, Dr. Toller, uh, who passed away uh, from Salus University, uh, distinctly remember him saying, the best, best piece of equipment you've got are the, is the one between your ears. Um, and, you know, we were taught to study the nerve and look at the nerve and, and love the nerve and draw the nerve and describe the nerve. Um, and so, you know, with the modern technology that we have today, um, I, I definitely see, you know, the need for decreased number of doctors, as Dr. Epstein has, has proposed. Um, because Elaborate the, on that. Because the technology will allow us to put more patients through our practice. Um, we will be able Do you to... Think we will be able to, if you think of the, the data we can collect today. So in our office, we have obviously autorefractors, topographers, fundus camera, non-midriatic fundus cameras, OCTs, um, visual fields. Now, with the exception of the visual fields, all those are done on patients in pretest. So before I even walk into the room with a pretty good sense of what's going on and my awesome staff, um, which I cannot thank enough. Um, I pretty much know what's going on or at least have good sense before I hit the room. And so, you know, we can, we can diagnose things. I mean, if you think about, you know, what, in a, what the, what the information in OCT delivers today and, and even that technology is changing. Um, so, uh, you know, at some point, I think an algorithm could be created uh, where 80% of the patients can be processed through a lot quicker. 20% will still take, you know, a little more beard pulling and, and, and head scratching. Okay. So, David, um, the optometry schools are pumping out new grads. And that is, so if you have a, um, a pie. You know, it's getting divided into a lot, a lot, a lot of segments. And um, that might be why some ODs are not busy because there's just too many slices. So you're saying we can, we can increase efficiency through technology and everyone's happier. Is that right? It is. But again, this technology is still going to be limited to the bigger, more higher volume practices. So 
as we've seen in other industries, you know, the big guy is going to crush the small guy and the small guy is either going to get absorbed or disappear. Um, I, I certainly think that private practice has the upper hand on that because we can control our destiny. Um, if well, you, to a certain to a certain extent, though, we I mean, we are a legislated profession by and large, run by state laws, and and there are new technologies that are going to be available that for which our our state laws are, are have not been considered and whenever you open up that state law you're open up for uh, different modes of practice uh, commercial ownership of uh, optometry is true in certain states not not in kansas but there are uh, influences of private equity for example that you know large entities are buying blocks and uh, of group practices. And so some of that is controversial in different states. And then also as we become more efficient and as the technology becomes more efficient, because I know the auto refractors, the modern ones are just awesome anymore. And it made, it's made life so much easier that are we setting ourselves up uh, as, we, as it becomes easier to do all these complex chores that somebody online will actually have a decent refraction. And you, you know, there's always a uh, fine edge where uh, legislators say, well, we need to be uh, fair to consumers and just let them do what they want to do on a do-it-yourself basis versus the safety of protecting the patient. So perhaps you could discuss as we become more efficient, how will some of these, uh, some of these parts of the exam just go by way of the internet? So one of the things we do is I go out there and I look, um, you know, if you go out onto uh, some of the frame sellers out there, I think Warner Brothers is one of them. Um, uh, I'm sorry, not Warner Brothers. <clears throat> Somebody else with a W in their name. I can't remember exactly who it is. Oh, but uh, yes. Darby Larker or something like that? Yeah, I can't. I, I forget the name. It, it escapes me right now. But okay. they have a very interesting thing where they will – and many ODs don't know this, is that they'll reimburse up to $50 for the PD, right? So we do, in fact, charge patients $50 for their PD because we do have the ability to charge for their PD. If they do go to Warby Parker, they get it reimbursed. So there, there used to be, I think there still is, some $50 glasses at Warby Parker. So one of the things, if you have a patient who you think is going to go, I'm sorry, please edit that out. Um, if you have a patient that thinks they're going to take their and get their glasses from one of these online retailers, um, you can certainly encourage that, um, which I do, because if that's what they want to do, um, we all have gone through life and bought something less expensive and then ended up buying what we wanted. It's it's human nature, I think, to to look for value, um, but they don't teach value. They only teach pricing. Um, so if we don't know, it's like buying tires, right? Um, we all know they're black, they're round, and they go on our car. But how many of us understand tread wear, temperature, you know, even sizing of your tire? 
We just know they're black, they're round, and what do they cost, right? right. So when we go to buy tires, it's kind of like it. yeah, we kind of like it's kind of like patients buying glasses. They don't understand the different qualities of progressives. They don't understand. We're asking them to buy something with minimal information. So I hope everyone takes that to heart that every time you have an optical sale in your office, that's someone saying, I trust you. I trust you to the point of X number of dollars. Because in all honesty, a pair of glasses today can be as much as a set of tires. Or more. Or more. Or more. And we, and we don't have $160 rebates either when we're buying four tires. <laughs> well, can you go, I'm go coming, back I'm to the house by you? The only thing they offer here is fifty dollars rebates. Oh no, we here it's more. They charge more, and then they give you your bigger rebates. So, but can you go back to how you know these disruptive innovations? And I, and I would describe that as something that is just good enough. You know, for example, when my children were born, I had a fancy video camera, and which got smaller over time, which got. Uh, more features and smaller, and eventually, you know, now I don't think too many people buy a video camera when they have a, a pretty decent photographic capability or video capability on their phones. Now, it's not a professional level photograph, but it's just good enough, or it's pretty darn good. So, you think we'll get to the point that people with minor corrections, mild corrections, will say, "Look, I'll, I'll just do a. I don't want to mention names, but." an online refraction. I just want an online refraction and there will be plenty of ophthalmologists that are really happy to sign off on those. And so we will end up losing those people as we become more differentiated. Some people maybe just want a $5 foot long or a $5 pizza. They don't want a $20 pizza or they don't want a $15 sandwich. You know, it's just good enough for them. And, and that's okay. I mean, I don't think, I don't think we're going to make I think we'd be foolish to think that we can keep everybody happy. Um, understand, you know, some people, I don't think any optometrist is, is that idealistic that every patient should leave there, uh, you know, glowing as if they're now a disciple of the practice out to spread the good word that Dr. XYZ does. Um, so we have to keep things into perspective. Of, you know, I think the national average now is still 2,300 patients um, is the average size of a practice today, uh, or excuse me, 2,300 exams are performed a year. Um, so, you know, when we're, when we're really talking the numbers, you know, if you can keep 10,000 patients happy, you're awesome. For sure. Well, David, Let's go ahead and uh, kind of wrap this up here. And I want you to leave us with just one big idea thought that when we walk into our practices in the morning, what can we do to open our eyes and say, wow, you know, I, I can make a change and I don't have to rely on groups or alliances or things to make significant impacts in our practice. That's that's a great one. Um, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And so every day we walk into our practice doing the same thing and we're expecting different results. So change something, do anything. Um, one quick thing, most of us have computers in our exam rooms. One of the things I started doing was 
flipping on YouTube and playing uh, cool jazz music. Actually, we're doing a, a little study on uh, basically patients who wait five minutes um, or more to see me. And when I check their pressures after listening to jazz music for five minutes. So here's some That's free good. things that you can do. Do they say doc while you're playing the elevator music? <laughs> I don't get that actually. I, you know, usually I ask them, Hey, do you, do you like jazz music? And you know, universally, I think, I don't think anybody finds jazz music offensive. Um, haven't had, haven't had a complaint yet. Um, I'm sure I will probably Monday morning because of this, but Murphy's you, better, you better have a hip hop station too. for <laughs> Exactly. Well, it's YouTube. It's YouTube. So everything is available out there. Um, invariably we've all walked into an exam room where the patient is waiting and invariably they're on their cell phone, which is fine. Um, they're using their time efficiently. They've got some nice music going on in the background. It calms the noise from outside of the exam rooms. There's that geolocator uh, on YouTube and you know it's going to bring up an optical ad. Two, two for 69 right in the room. One for 69. <laughs> actually, actually, if you put on, I think I put on, uh, it's like a rainy jazz station. Um, there are no commercials and it's all done live. So, you know, if a patient comes in and they uh, had a patient named, uh, what was B.B. King's guitar's name? Lucille. So I had a patient come in. Her name was Lucille. Um, I said, every time I see your name, I think of B.B. King. Do you like B.B. King? She says, sure. I go to YouTube. I put on some B.B. King. I put the drops into dilator and I'm into the next exam room. So she now knows that I associate her with the great legend, B.B. King. She's enjoying B.B. King's music and I'm off seeing the next patient. She probably went home so, and said, wow, I had the greatest doctor ever or he played B.B. King, and that's they'll he always played, remember that stupid little thing you did. But it was correct. Me. Correct. It's, it's so interesting actually, how yeah. yeah, it's interesting how sometimes we we just want to knock them out with a killer exam and everything. And what they remember is that we gave the older person a piece of hard candy or or a bottle of water. You know, correct. Anything. Correct. What about all the other stuff I did? You remember I gave you a piece of candy or a cookie. <laughs> Exactly. Or, you know, I like to, um, when the kids come in, I have this uh, squishy eye thing and it makes noises and, and squirts out, not out of the eye, but blood. And so, you know, it kind of, I let them play with that. Um, you do things, you have to understand that part of our job is art and science. And part of it is you're on stage in all honesty. Um, you are performing in a sense right. for the patient. And so think about their experiences with other doctors. Yes, Mrs. Smith, what's your problem? Here's your prescription. I'll see you back in six months, right? Six years. So make it hey, make company. it fun and make it fun and lively, right? I remember, you know, my son calling me one day that he got a speeding ticket. And I have to walk into the next room with a how you doing, Mrs. Smith, right? It doesn't matter what's going on in your personal life. Do not bring that into the exam room. Make it a fun experience for the patient, however you do it, whether it's some doctors wear bow ties, right? We even had one practice here. Um, I don't know if you've had this where you are, but we actually had one doctor, and, and I find it reprehensible, um, actually had two dogs in the office. Um, they were the doctor's dogs that he would bring into the office. 
again, I think I practice in a more medical environment. Um, I don't think that's appropriate. But it turns out I had a patient back from a retina specialist, and it turns out one day the retina specialist brought his dog to the to the office, um, which really threw me for a loop. New definition of therapy, dog. Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I, I, I just, <clears throat> I, I think a dog is something that people, are, you know, it's it's almost like politics. You're either going to love them or hate them. Um, and so I, I'd rather not bring that into the practice. Who doesn't like music, right? If you don't like music, okay, sit in silence. That's fine too. But make it different. Um, that's a good, again, that's a good concept. I, maybe just walk you know, in from I, your front door and walk through your practice and try to have a view from how patients would view it. And that means right. little, and, slip a paper on the floor or something. Uh, as uh, as the representatives try to redecorate your office with propaganda, so correct. And and you'd be amazed, you know. Um, we put up a big screen TV in our. We don't even call it our waiting room anymore. As a matter of fact, we call it the opportunity room. Right? It's the patient's opportunity to see the doctor. If you call it a waiting room, that has a negative connotation. Right. Yeah. We don't. Right. No one wants to wait anymore. Exactly. It's your opportunity room. Yes. Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Hain, it's been a pleasure having you tell us interesting concepts about optometry, your relationship with the industry, with your colleagues. We didn't touch on your, your, your involvement in professional optometry, but perhaps we can catch you on another time for that and how that's been beneficial both to the profession and, and to your practice. But we uh, it's we enjoyed having you as our guest. So do you have any, we'd like to know how people can contact you if they do have a question and perhaps you can have some concluding words of wisdom. Absolutely. It's been always a pleasure talking to other optometrists. I enjoy going to our meetings and kind of uplifting everybody. We are, we are blessed as doctors that we get to help people every day. Do you think, think about it. We change people's lives every day. The guy who writes software, his software is dead in 18 months, right? He has done essentially little. So, you know, certainly reach out to me. Um, our website is FECCVA.com. That's Family Eye Care Centers of Virginia.com. And you can reach me at Dr. Hain at FECCVA.com. Excellent. Perry, have you got any? No, I'm, I'm going to go buy some makeup, right? You know, I think I finally can get some manly makeup made up. So Yeah, we we just need to transfer that into a 3D printer for our bespoke eyewear after we scan their heads. And I, I joke with some of the patients, I say, you know, we have all these frames here, but in, in five years, you may ask, where are all the frames? And we'll point to a... To a uh, 36 by 36-inch box. Yeah, and we, we call it our real eye design studio right now with a large monitor and, and 3d scanning of the head but that is going to be something in time where we'll wonder what happened where did all the frames that's go? Gonna, that's going to be amazing that's amazing i mean think about it think about what i mean the other thing that you got to think about is what are you going to do with that other optical space right because i mean my my boutique is i think i'm either 14 or 1600 square feet I mean, if I could reduce that down to 200 square feet. That would be nice. You'd lease it out to 
someone else. No, more more exam rooms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a self service station for uh, self contained refraction and spit out your glasses. So right, uh, I, I really I really feel like you know so many of us are you know chicken little. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Um, I. I just had a scenario where we just had a terrible storm on the East coast that slammed into uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, where I have family. And, you know, the weather forecast was originally a category four, maybe a five. And then by the time it hit, it was, I think it was a one or, or a two at, at worst. Um, so the analogy that I draw is uh, because it is the first storm of the season. Um, you know, at first it's uh, the uh, chicken little, the sky is falling and then it turns into the boy who cried wolf, um, which doesn't so help the next time around. So you got it. All right, gentlemen. Okay, thank you so much. And we will see you at one of the shows coming up. I'm sure. Awesome. Looking forward to it. This brings us to the end of another episode of Entrepreneur, the podcast for Wizards of Eyes. Go ahead and click over to our website, entrepreneur.com, or head over to Facebook to join our special Facebook group, Entrepreneur. See you there.